Hello and welcome to another edition of Operation Limitless. I'm Brett Lechtenberg. This is the show where we focus on how average people ended up achieving incredible triumphs through grit, determination, and creativity. The goal is to take the commonalities that these incredible human beings and build a model which we can all replicate and create a limitless life. So today on King's Information Network, I have the extreme honor of talking with Green Beret and author of the new book that's coming out soon, Is It Clear for Medical, Mr. Sal Rossano. Sal, thanks for being with us today. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. <laughs> I can tell by that big smile on your face. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I see you is a, is a pleasure. Yeah, of course. Um, I've known Sal for several years. We, we got to meet through a Chamber of Commerce event uh, some time ago and became friends. And uh, he only wants to beat me up sometimes. Well, that was about 11 years ago. Has it been that long? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. He's counting the days. Uh, to me, it just <laughs> seems like yesterday. But, <laughs> um, And I've asked Sal to the show today because he's got a pretty incredible journey of where he came from, from childhood, how he ended up going through Special Forces selection, becoming a Green Beret, and has gone on to a great career for the military. Uh, I'm not going to steal a lot of his thunder here, but traveling the globe, as a trauma survival expert and teaching military and civilians, uh, a pretty incredible array of skills and, and now teaches everyday people these skills. So Sal, again, thanks for being on the show and uh, we appreciate you being here and more than anything, I really appreciate your service to our country. Well, thank you. Um, I'm actually humbled to be here. I mean, you know, you're, you're a pretty, pretty exceptional guy and accomplished a lot of things. So the mere fact that you invited me is quite an honor. So thank you. All right. Well, the check's in the mail. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about your journey. Can you just kind of fill in our audience? Uh, You had pretty humble upbringings. And uh, what really led you to Special Forces, Green Beret, that being the thing and then how that's kind of progressed. Sure. How far, we got enough time. How far do you want me to go back? <laughs> oh, we can, we can be as, as much therapy as you want to have. Right so. on. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm the first American born in my family. My family immigrated from Italy. Um, my mother and father had a third and fifth grade ed- education, respectively. So not a lot of education. Um, you know, the mere fact that they wanted to give us a better future and a better chance than what they had was what brought us here. Um, and, and my dad was always a guy who worked his tail off. He worked harder than anybody I even knew, ever known. Um, and he used to tell me a lot of stories about kind of the struggles he had in Italy. And, you know, I almost had a parallel lifestyle where he had to leave and go work overseas for about five years. And, and I did something similar. But we ended up coming over. My mom was eight months pregnant with me. And, you know, she had to lie to the, the captain of the ship and say that she was six months. Otherwise, he wasn't going to let her come on. I mean, I'm, I was wow. almost born at sea. <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that part before. Yeah, my dad thought it'd be fun to take a ship across the ocean. But, you know, I don't think it was necessary. But he <laughs> wanted to be part of that. So, you know, and then we end up, uh, you know, I was born in Denver. We ended up moving back to, to D.C. area because my uncle was a mess sergeant. And hmm. he married my mom's sister. And so we ended up in D.C. And from there, we we were, lived right outside of uh, kind of like the Washington, D.C. area, the suburbs it was called, uh, Wheaton, Maryland, or Rockville, Maryland. It's right by Silver Spring. It's um, a pretty rough area, as I recall. Yeah, it, it was really bad. I mean, in high school, this is how bad it was. If my friends came to pick me up, they wouldn't even come into the parking lot. They'd meet me on the main road. <laughs> now, we're talking like a four-lane highway. That's how bad it was that they didn't want to come in. They were willing to risk that. Um, so I grew up in a neighborhood that we were pretty much the minority. It was a, a mix of everybody, Afro, Afro-Americans, Chinese, you know, Hispanics. I, I mean, you name it, it was there. It was a low housing kind of project. Mm-hmm. And for me, it was the best place in the world, um, you know, because we, had, we were all friends. But the funny thing is when, like, strange people would come in or a different car was in the parking lot, everybody knew about it. Everybody knew about it. Um, but it was a rough area. And, the, and you know, my friends never wanted to come in. They used to call me a terrace rat because the name of our place was <laughs> Rock Creek Terrace. So I was called the terrace rat. But it, this was the type of place that the janitors were arrested under a sting for cooking crack cocaine in the apartments across the hall. Nice. 
Yeah, so, so you had some good good influences. Oh yeah, it was on. awesome. It was awesome, and you know, some of my friends or acquaintances, I guess they were older, you know, were arrested for purse snatching. So it was it was a fun neighborhood, <laughs> if you weren't a delinquent. <laughs> Well, that's another kind of fun. I yeah. Think. So, but it, it was a rough neighborhood. But you know, my mom and dad kept me straight. Um, you know, I met a family that I will forever be grateful to, named the Bennetts, and they live in North Carolina now. But those guys, they allowed me a place to go and to see a different side. They lived in the suburbs of Rockville. You know, Jimmy was my best friend. He took me on vacations with him. Uh, they had a pool in their backyard, and for a poor kid whose dad was a, a public school, you know, janitor, that was a whole nother world for me. I mean, I, I used to go to Miami on spring breaks for Easter, and and it was like it was heaven for me because I typically wouldn't even leave the state. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the Bennets were able to offer that to me, and so, you know, I got to see a different side of it, and you know, maybe call it uh, desire or wants or, you know, materialistic drive. But I didn't want to live the lifestyle that I was growing up and nor did I did I want my kids to do it. So I think, you know, when D.C., we used to have a creek back there and it was called Rock Creek. And it was part of the whole D.C. park systems and stuff. Then I remember being like 12 years old, leading missions down the creek with long sticks <laughs> and other kids. And I think I just watched the movie Green Berets with John Wayne. And so I was like, you know what? I got we got the jungle out back. We're going to do it. <laughs> so I rounded up all the kids that were younger than me and didn't know any better. And we basically got in a creek waist deep carrying sticks. So and, John Wayne is to, yeah, to thank. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, it didn't help that my uncle was a mess sergeant, but you know, the military right off the bat kind of became a, a, I guess a an intriguing thing to me. And then seeing the movie, it was like, okay. I think that's something cool. And, you know, and as a, as a older I got, like in high school and everything else, I started realizing what those guys in Vietnam really did and what they went through. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the sheer determination to, like, go through something like that and come back and survive, to me, was like there was no bigger test of life. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of those guys that, you know, over there lost in the jungle or they'd move around in six-man teams – and do so much damage and still be able to fight and get home. To me, that was just, that was it. That was the pinnacle of, of a, you know, to me at the time, a true man, a soldier that could do that. Right. So, so that kind of built the interest in it. And then I got to, you know, high school. I graduated. I joined the military, did an active duty stint, um, came back, and then joined the National Guard. But I'd always had this inkling or this desire to know if I was good enough to be a Green Beret. Mm-hmm. Um, the problem was I didn't have the confidence to try it out until much later. And so, you know, growing up in a family like I did and, you know, we all loved each other, but it was, we were an immigrant family and had nothing else except ourselves. So we were all in each other's peanut butter nonstop <laughs> and everybody had an opinion on what you should do with your life. Um, you know, so it took me a minute to kind of realize, you know what, we're going to give it a shot. Um, and so then I think at age 35, now is when I actually tried out. I was going to say, now, I know it came later in life for you. At 35, what's the average age of a person trying to get through special forces selection, Green Beret selection, whatever the exact proper term is? What's the average age these days? 22, yeah. 23? Yeah. If we take the we take the people with diapers out, yeah, it's probably about, <laughs> it's a lot of young kids. It's a young man's game. Um, I think the biggest thing that I noticed is there was a lot of kids in mid twenties, and those kids were just phenomenal. They were they were superstars physically, mm-hmm. mentally. You know, they didn't have some of the stuff you need to get through, but physically they were specimens. Mm-hmm. And here I am trying to keep up with them. And I think the only thing that helped me was just raw determination. So, so at thirty-five, mm-hmm. you uh, opt in. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I opted in so much I had to do it twice. Yeah. T- tell <laughs> us about that because that's uh, to go through thirty-five and then decide to go back. Yeah. So, so I think I've told this and I've shared this with you before. You know, before you know the time of being nineteen all the way up to thirty-five. That's a good spell. That's what, 16 years? Mm-hmm. And in that 16 years, um, I robbed myself of time. 
I robbed myself of time because I didn't have the confidence to try it. And so for me, you know, I looked at these Green Berets, these guys that had, you know, they were legends in Vietnam. And I'm like, there's some special factory up in the mountains where they produce these guys. It's not everyday guys off the street that can do this, you know. Mm -hmm. And so I built up such a, I guess, such a, an obstacle in my own brain that I wasn't able to do it or I wasn't good enough to do it, that these guys were like special breeds of men that came from other or men that came from places unknown, that it took me 16 years to finally say, you know what, I'm going to go. And even when I went, I think I was just like, you know what, I'm still not good enough, but I'm going to try. Um, and I went, got through, I think, the second week and fell in the water in the middle of January. So I became hyperthermic. And so about three hours later, I had no idea where I was. And so basically, I, I kind of, I was dropped medically. Mm -hmm. And then I went back nine months later. Now, the, the most incredible thing happened during that time frame. Yeah, I failed. I didn't make it through. But I got to peek behind the curtain. And I got to see that, you know what, there, there are no robo cops or robo soldiers here. Um, this isn't some crazy factory that produced all these men that, you know, have such intestinal fortitude and, and strength that they can't be compared. These were everyday guys that had the confidence to get out there and put their left foot in front of their right. Mm -hmm. and, and they did it. And so the second time I went back, I changed my entire mental state, my mindset, my, my training, everything. And I was successful getting through it. And so would it be fair to say that that's one of the defining moments Absolutely. of your life? Absolutely. That, it doesn't have to be that single moment in time, but that little gap between attempt number one and success and, and number two? Yeah, and I think, you know, I think I probably suffered with, you know, what, 99% of the people out there. How many people out there have not taken a chance and done something because mm -hmm. they haven't looked behind the curtain to see that everybody's human, everybody bleeds, everybody breathes air, everybody does that, right? So mm -hmm. how many people have put off trying something, be it a business, a relationship, a, a career, you know, a college degree, because they think they're not good enough or they're scared of the outcome. Sure. Now, Absolutely. So in that period, I think I was fortunate enough to, to have that kind of aha moment or that enlightening moment to say, this is up to me. It's not up to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that's what being limitless is all about, right? Is, mm -hmm. is how, does, how does that happen? So if you could define it, maybe you can, maybe you can't, what do you think is the key to your confidence now? Now, so I think the biggest thing for me is mindset. Um, I look at things and I say, okay, if somebody else can do it, that means it's not impossible. And even if somebody hasn't done it, it doesn't mean it's impossible. And I think the biggest thing is you got to believe in yourself. You got to believe in what you're capable of doing. And then you got to know that there's a whole another side of that capability that you haven't even tapped into yet. Right. And, uh, and I think... For me, I, I, I don't have limits anymore as far as what I think is acceptable or doable or anything. I'm either going to do it or I'm not. Mm -hmm. And if I don't, that's fine. But if I don't try, then that's even worse than failing. Absolutely. And, you know, having seen you teach many times, variety of, of different people from kids through adults, uh, I think it's amazing the way you're able to convey your message with confidence, with clarity and uh with compassion right when my son was on the top of that mountain it wasn't going to repel off there and, and you were standing well i guess you're more kneeling uh just kind of encouraging him through probably the most terrifying day of his life uh but he was successful and he did great and and uh, i just can't say thank you enough for that because i know that was a life-changing moment for him and i've watched you teach others and them have similar moments. And I think you should be really proud of yourself and for that. And I think it's an amazing skill. Well, I appreciate that. You know, Dalton's a, he's a fun, a fun young man. I can't even say kid anymore, but, uh, it was, it was funny to watch him overcome that as well. I think I just stood there and gave him emotional support more than anything. <laughs> I think so too. Um, we need to take a quick break. Sure. So we're, we're going to step away for a moment, and uh, then we're going to come back, and I want to delve a little more into your, your specialty skills and the things that you're doing now for our military and, and your book and things like that, okay? Perfect. 
All right. Well, we'll take a quick break, and we'll be right back with Sal Rosano. I'm author Richard Paul Evans. Several years ago, I asked author Mary Higgins Clark the secret to her success. She said, Richard, I try to make every book my best. I've tried to do the same. My readers deserve that. And sometimes magic happens. I think you're going to love my new book, Noelle Street. My agent cried nine times. Even the woman recording the audiobook had to take breaks because she couldn't stop crying. Noelle Street is the story of a mother's love and forgiveness. I can't wait for you to read it. That's Noelle Street, on sale November 5th. Hello, my friends. This is Brad Newfeld of The Brad Newfeld Show right here on Five Kingdoms Radio. Tune in Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. Mountain Standard Time to hear tips and strategies on how to overcome the challenges of life. You'll be glad you did. You are listening to Five Kingdoms Radio. The station that helps you increase order and magnify your kingdoms. All right, and we're back with Operation Limitless. I'm Brett Lechtenberg, and I have the honor of being here with Sal Rosano. Green Beret, Special Forces Medic, and the author of the upcoming book, Is It Clear for Medical? And Sal, uh, you know, you just told us this great story of how you got through selection and and the mindset that finally took over for you and kicked in. Um, And I want to dive into your story with the military a little bit, if you don't mind, or even if you do mind. Um, (laughs) It's never stopped you before. You've got a very unique skill set that most people just simply don't have. You have you have done a number of things from sniper training to jumping out of planes to high angle mountain rescue, not just the medic stuff <laughs> that's uh actually your your career path these days. So mm-hmm. can you can you tell us uh, maybe explain to people when did you realize that you had a pretty unique skill set or maybe an aptitude for medical, or I'll take any of these things, whether it's the sniper training or jumping out of planes or whatever. But you know, your 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 path these days is is teaching limitless and and, and medical. So maybe just tell us when you'd realized that was your thing, how, yeah, and how. Um, uh, I, let's go to the medical side because I think that's where that's where I have the most passion uh, passion with. And when you ask me when I think I had the, I guess. When I had, when I realized I had special skills, is that what you? Yeah, or yeah, maybe even think of it as a defining time where it's like this is my thing, this is my passion. Oh, okay. Well, that's easy then. So oh, I don't want easy. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'll make it hard then. <laughs> so you know, I graduated from the special forces medical course, um, which is probably the hardest thing academically I've ever done up until this moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a year of probably two to three years of pre-med crammed into six months or less and then moved on to do other things in the medical course. But I graduated in 2008, surprisingly couldn't find a job locally. So I decided, okay, well, I'll go overseas. The you know, DOD was looking for some, some medics to work overseas. So I ended up in Iraq and uh, the Air Force... I guess had a base and what they had done is they'd hired hired an outside company to provide the perimeter security. Well, this company went out and hired close to a thousand Ugandans. Yeah. Ugandans? Ugandans. Yeah. And so it was, it was a pretty intense operation, but they got them all over. They got them trained. They got them on the, the walls and then the towers and so what I came on, my job was to provide medical care for these thousand plus Ugandans. And I'm as green as they come. I'm as green as they come. Just graduated less than four months ago, um, ready to conquer the world until I was out there on the world by myself. <laughs> so <laughs> so long story short, they give me this this kind of room that's made of rundown brick and couple of plywood boards and stuff like that and said all right here's your here's your clinic 
you got about a you know a thousand Ugandans, fifty three Americans, and you're the guy. And I said, okay, cool. And then I shut the door and I said, what the heck am I going to do now? <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? Yeah. So then I did what I think I can do best, and that's I went around, started meeting people and talking to people, and I found that all the units that were leaving actually didn't want to take all their medical supplies with them. So I kind of made a circuit of the base and kind of collected as much medical gear as I could. And I ended up stocking a fully functional clinic from everything from Band-Aids to EKG machines hmm. to O2 sensors and oxygen masks and everything else. So, and, and rightfully so, because with a thousand people, the odds are not in my favor that something bad's going to happen. Um, but the biggest thing that I came away from this, there was two things specifically that come to mind that made me realize medicine was the place for me or this is where I belong. I'm going to kind of go backwards. When I left, I was surprised by the number of people that were mad at me. Really? Yeah. So there was probably a good hundred of those Ugandans that came in, some of them like yelling at me, some of them crying, some of them really just upset that I was leaving. And it didn't dawn on me until I got on the plane was I kind of gave them, um, I gave them something they didn't have. Like as a, as a medical provider, we always think that, hey, look, medicine is the way to go. You know, I'm going to give you Band-Aids. I'm going to give you that. But medicine is so much more than that. It's, it's about making sure that you're looking at everybody as a whole person and not just the fact that you got a cut and i got to give you stitches. Mm -hmm. And so when you do that, you're treating the whole person. Now, back then, I didn't know all this. I, I was just doing it. But it became very apparent to me that, like, I gave these guys something to believe in. I gave them a safe zone for them to come into and not feel ridiculed and not feel judged and not feel like they were, you know, um, I guess being laughed at because they wanted to come to the medics or whatever the case may be. And that was something that kind of led me, it brought me to a place where it reminded me of my father. Because in all my father's endeavors overseas, he always remembered the people that treated him with respect and dignity. Always. Hmm. And so that was my biggest goal over there. Is, and I kind of saw my father in these, in, these, in these people because it was like, they're all over here trying to make money for their family. They come from a depressed country. They, you know, they didn't have much education, so they went across the, the ocean or wherever they went um, to, to make a living to send back money. So it reminded me of my father. So it was my goal and it was my mindset that I was going to treat them with the most the utmost respect and dignity that I could while giving them medical treatment. Um, and so when I left and they were so heartbroken and so upset, uh, initially, as I said, I was kind of surprised, but then it, it dawned on me that, you know, I gave them something they didn't have in that country. I gave them a safe place. I gave them trust in someone to take care of them. Um, and in the end, I, you know, I can only believe that they were upset that I was leaving because one of them said, what is wrong with you? Why are you leaving? You're the only one here. And I kind of didn't get it at first because, you know, at that point I had uh, reached my limit and, you know, it was, you know how it is, company politics, whatever. So I was t ready to go home. So that was one point. That was a very defining moment for me to realize that, you know, medicine for me was more than just prescribing or giving somebody a Band-Aid. Mm -hmm. It was about helping somebody get better, about healing, um, about making sure that this person as a whole was doing well. And I think, if I can tie it back in, I think that's why you and I are so um, passionate about this Operation Limitless, because we're trying to make people better. We're trying to give them, although we're not using medicine, we're using other, other means to get them to where they need to be. Yeah. And so the other point that defined me, I guess, during the same kind of trip over there is there was a young kid named Wilbur. He was a Ugandan. And I took him and I said, hey, I'm about to give you something that you will never have anybody take away from you. And he thought it was something like, you know, I don't know, a chem light or something crazy, <laughs> like a flashlight. Who knows? But I taught him to the best of my ability how to do medicine. And I'll save all the details in between there, but. Wilbur now lives in California. He teaches at the junior college level. He teaches EMT stuff. Wow. Um, he's got a wife. He's got a baby. So he's kind of, he removed himself from Uganda. 
not that Uganda is a bad place, but he removed himself from his environment of poverty, not having any money. And I'd like to think that me training him and giving him the foundation enabled him to succeed on a much higher level. Oh, well, I have no doubt that that was a huge impact on that young man's life. Yeah. Wow. And, Congratulations. Uh, yeah, You've never told you. me that before. Yeah, it's uh, it was kind of a bittersweet because, you know, when I left, he was the one kid that really made it difficult to leave. Hmm. Uh, I mean, and uh, he, he told me, he goes, I hope your airplane blows up before it gets here so you can't leave. <laughs> and I said, I'm glad you prefaced it before it gets here, not with me on it. I said, because that would have been bad. <laughs> no kidding. But, you know, Wilbur was, he was a sharp cat. He was super smart, super great soccer player. Um, and he told me something I'll never forget. And it, it made me feel very humble. He said, I believe in reincarnation. And I believe that maybe you're, you were my father at one point in life. And that, that kind of took me back because, you know, I don't know. I don't know how much I believe in anything, really, to be honest with you. But <laughs> the mere fact that he gave me that compliment humbled me to to such a, a level that uh, you know i got emotional when he told me that wow well i don't blame you it makes me emotional thinking about it yeah but i'm a crier you know yeah i know that <laughs> you cry over spilt milk all the time uh, uh, but you know and again if i think that's why you know our our dnas are very similar because again with wilbur i gave him something that nobody i'd like to think i gave him something that nobody else will ever take from him and I'd like to think that foundation is what set him on his path of success now. Absolutely. I'm sure it was. And kind of on that same note, you know, Limitless is all about improving confidence, improving focus, reducing stress, as you know, and, and teaching, mm -hmm. right? Teaching people. Um, what, and, and you've got a, a large, a vast array of skills when it comes to teaching a variety of different subjects, right? Whether it's medicine, whether it's shooting, you know, I've seen you teach a lot of things. Um, what do you think is the key to helping someone become accepting or more teachable, more engaged? What do you try and do to get people more engaged so they're more, uh, more accepting to learning? Um, they got to have a reason. I mean, they got to have a reason, right? Mm -hmm. Like who, who wants to do anything unless they see that there's value for them? So I, I'd like to always think that before we do anything, and this is obviously a trick I've learned in the military, but it, you got to give them a motivational factor. You got to give them a reason why they're doing something. Otherwise, it's like, why are we doing this? You know, that's a typical military phrase from every guy out there. It's like, why are we doing this? This is so stupid. And it's like, okay, well, let me tell you why. Um, and if you take it back to our last Limitless event where we made makeshift tourniquets, how many of those people were more engaged because of the the correlation between what was going on with active shooters mm -hmm. and how the odds of them or somebody getting hurt in their family could exist? Right. And so I think the biggest thing you got to do for anybody is they got to have a reason. And that's, I, I guess, for anything in life, you got to have a reason why you want to do something. Right. You got to have a motivational factor. So when I try to teach people... I'm not just trying to teach them so, you know, I feel good about myself, but I, I try to teach them so they can say, you know, one day I may need this. Mm -hmm. And I think you've seen that video I have of that PTSD mm -hmm. video mm -hmm. and uh, the gentleman in there, and I forget his name, I'm embarrassed to say that, but he says, you may learn one thing that you never have to use in your life except one time. And for me, that's a motivating, that's a driving factor. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we call it creating a vision and you know, I think they're all, you're 100% right on the mark. Um, tell me your opinion, the confidence level, anxiety levels, that, you know, of people these days. What do you see out there? How do you feel they compare to people 20 years ago? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh. That was, that, <laughs> no, it's, that was uh, a happy laugh, not a condescending laugh. Um, you know, I'll tell you a story. In 1994, I was sent to France for the 50th anniversary of D-Day. And I got to sit with the veterans of my back then company, military company. It was the 29th Infantry Division, and they sent us there, and, and we got to be partake in the, in the festivities and the celebration, and we got to eat chow or dinner with some of the veterans. And I'll never forget it. One of the guys asked me, he goes, hey, what is it today with the youth? What is it? Like, nobody seems to have a sense of patriotism or nobody wants to do anything. 
And I couldn't answer it. So I don't know if I can really answer it now, but I will say that I think we've allowed ourselves to quit. Mm-hmm. I think our I think our our society has allowed us or we've allowed or we've accepted the fact that if something gets too hard, eh, just quit. It's okay. Yep. The level of grit yeah. is deter- deteriorating. Yeah, and the, and the one thing, and, and you know, we used to coach football. My other coaches used to laugh at me because I used to say to them all, I used to say to the kids all the time, give yourself permission to feel the pain. Mm-hmm. And I think if you give, and this goes back to mindset, if you're going to give yourself permission to quit or if you let that enter, then it's going to be easier to quit, right? So I think, I think our society is allowed allowed the easy way out and unfortunately by doing that it takes away a lot of the lessons learned that you you normally would get when you actually fail something yep you know absolutely so and and if i can caveat this you know when i went to 50th anniversary to d-day in normandy beach like low tide to the actual beach was about a half a mile and then you look up and you see these cliff lines that have all these German pillboxes in or pillar boxes, the concrete boxes in them. And there's, if the world wasn't in the situation it was at that time and somebody told me we won the war, I'd say you're full of it. So to me, you talk about grit. Those guys had it figured out. Mm-hmm. Those guys knew what it took. Those guys ran and stormed across a beach in the middle of gunfire and they made it happen. Now imagine... If somebody told them, no, it's okay, quit. Imagine what would have happened. <laughs> yeah. So I, I think to answer your question, I think society has made it okay to quit. I think they, you know, if you feel a little uncomfortable, it's okay to just say, forget it, move on to something else. Yeah, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. I want to ask you one other question before we take a quick break. Um, and maybe you've already answered it, but what are your steps you found for yourself uh, to become more open and receptive to learning do you think it's the idea of giving yourself permission do you think it is uh you know the reason what what is it for you uh for learning you know for be able to step into a challenge sure because obviously step into a a lot of them i mean we didn't even talk about the fact that you just retired from the police department salt lake and some other things here so yeah um i think you hit it on the head um you know, academically, I've struggled all my life. Um, and I think academically, I've probably just like everybody else out in the world's got some scars from people's comments and thoughts and everything else. But, you know, the one thing I always have to remind myself in a classroom that's in an open setting is I always say, give yourself permission to learn. And what that means for me is don't be afraid to look stupid. Don't be mm-hmm. afraid to fail. Mm-hmm. Don't be afraid to make yourself vulnerable to the point that you may learn something, right? you know? Yeah. And I, and I think by doing that, it allows me to open up um, mentally and emotionally and not be afraid to fail or look stupid, which enhances the learning process. I can't agree more. Being the eternal learner and being able to being willing to put yourself in that position is, is crucial. Yeah. Well, we're going to take a quick break um, here at uh, King's radio network and We'll be back in just a minute with a little more from Green Beret Sal Rosano. Hello, everyone. My name is Jay Walter, host of Rebuilding, a radio show right here on the Tribe of Kings Information Network. Be sure to tune in weekly to hear more about the Tribe of Kings and to learn how to overcome fear and rebuild your life every day as you become the man you want to be. You are listening to Five Kingdoms Radio, where we inspire you to organize and align your life so that you can build a better you, a better family, and become a better friend and associate so that you can ultimately bless the world. If these are your goals and you want to help us build this life-changing network, we invite you to become a sponsor or advertise on our station. For more information on this amazing opportunity, please contact us at fivekingdomsradio.com.
Hello everyone, this is Brad Neufeld, host of the Five Kingdoms Radio Show. Be sure and tune in every Monday through Friday from 4 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time on our website at fivekingdomsradio.com. That's the number five, kingdoms with a Y, radio.com. Thank you and have an awesome day. All right, welcome back to Operation Limitless. Brett Lechtenberg, and again, we're here with Sal Rossano, our Green Beret Special Forces medic extraordinaire. Sal, thanks again for being with us today. Oh, it's awesome. Thanks for inviting me. Hey, Sal, you've shared some great information with us so far, and you've got some incredible philosophies of teaching and how to get people engaged and those kind of things. Um, if you can, can you share a time when people around you were in a state of maybe confusion, disbelief, negativity, whatever, most something emotionally charged, but yet you were clear, you were focused on what needed to be done, what needed to happen, and to simply accomplish the task at hand, maybe you had to organize the troops, so to speak, uh, and just get things done when everything around you was just in chaos. Yeah, I think so. Um you know, coming back to the medical side, because that seems to be the most chaotic in anybody's life and when you have some kind of traumatic event. Uh, I remember, and this is, maybe this is or isn't what you're looking for, but we had a, a father bring a kid to the to the gate who had a shrapnel wound in his stomach. This was in what, Iraq? Afghanistan, Afghanistan. Afghanistan, sorry. Yeah, so uh, he had been throwing a rock at a, at a mortar round that wasn't un, was unexploded. And uh, so he took shrapnel to the stomach, and, and you know, the father was just beside himself. But they brought him to the gate. He's wrapped in a rug, and the father was just kind of, you know, obviously he was, losing, uh, he was losing his mind. And there's a little background story with that that I'll share with you as well. But the gate guards were, you know, obviously U.S. The people bringing them into the gate were Afghanis. So it was kind of an intense moment. Um, it was very charged Sure. For multiple reasons, you know, the, the Afghani army was very concerned about the young kid. The father was very concerned. And, and then we have our U.S. troops that were following orders and doing their thing at the front gate. Um, the good thing about my rank is it, it, it kind of weighs my shirt down, you know, because it's <laughs> so heavy. So people see my rank and they kind of uh, they kind of uh, start looking and seeing how that we can accomplish the thing. But they, he came to the gate. Everybody was charged. It was, you know, there was a dog on the scene, a, you know, a canine dog and everything else. And so with my junior medic, I told my junior medic, hey, you go look at the kid. And I, I basically stood between both parties and said, hey, look, I'm taking responsibility. We got to get this kid help. It's not a big deal. You know, I told the U.S. guys, if your commanders or your leaders had any issues, this is who I am. Um, but this is about saving a kid's life, and that's what we're going to do. And I think once the kids real, once the soldiers realized, hey, you know, he's right. This is about saving this little boy's life. Um, they were okay with it, and I think the fact that I told the Master Sergeant Rosana would take the heat for him, <laughs> I think that kind of lightened the load for them as well. So, sure. But you know, it was an emotionally charged thing. This kid, you know, he was he was potentially going to die. Um, Afterwards, I found out why his father was so charged. And it's things like this you never really know, but people look for leadership in these moments. But his father, you know, he was probably 38 years old, looked like he was 88 just from the life that they've lived. Mm -hmm. um, he had his house burnt down. And, um, well, we'll just leave it at this. He, he had his family and his life destroyed by, you know, some of the, some of the um, parties over there that had their own agenda and so this was his last living child oh wow and so he you know he was charged and I didn't blame him I, I would be too and so I think in the end knowing that story I felt even better about what we did and how we handled it because it was it could have gone either way I mean we could have you know the gate guards could have pushed him away and the kid could have died or you know something else could have happened but in the end the kid was he was flown up to the main hospital in the country, the U.S. Army Hospital, and he was taken care of. And five days later, he was back down with his dad in our camp and eating ice cream and <laughs> smiling and loving it. So, 
Awesome. Yeah, I think that calmness right there was was paramount to making sure that that whole thing went smoothly. Now, I'm not taking any credit for what the doctors did, but I think the mere fact that I was able to open the gate, uh, that's how that's how it started. That's outstanding. It goes back to what you were talking to us about earlier, treating people with ultimate respect and courtesy and finding solutions. And so that's a, that's a very powerful story. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, it's um, sorry if I can. I mean, no, it, it, please. You learn these life lessons in the weirdest places and in the, in the craziest times. But, you know, think about it. You got a kid coming to the to a place to get help in the back of a pickup truck wrapped in a rug. What happens in the U.S.? You get an ambulance, lights, heat, blankets, everything else. And so I think times people forget, they forget what we have. And they forget that everybody out there is struggling one way or another. And if we can help somebody, it's our duty. Absolutely. So. That's, that's very powerful. Um, this is the part where I want you to maybe uh, impart on our listeners and future listeners some, some wisdom here for a few questions. Uh-oh. Okay. So... Uh, when you attempt to learn or master a skill, a craft, whatever it is, what are the things that happen for you first? How do you look at something super challenging, that's, um, you know, like medicine, right? That's, that's a big task. How do you look at those things and put them in a framework for which you can learn them effectively and, and as easily as possible? Well, you know I'm a knuckle dragger at heart, so it takes me like <laughs> 10 minutes to learn what you will learn in one minute. Um, I think the biggest thing for me, and this is I found works for me, it probably doesn't work for everybody, but I got to understand what I'm doing first. Um, and that's very time consuming in some aspects, but I got to understand what the end result is. Because if I don't understand the end result, then I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to approach it. Um, and I think you've seen it too when we've taught some of the medical trauma classes. It's like, I'm talking to a kid. If I start telling the kid, hey, you want to include this major vessel, you want to put this on, we're going to strap this here, they're looking at me like I'm crazy. But if I tell them, hey, you want to step on the hose so dad can't water the garden, they immediately know what they got to do. They can visualize that. And that brings me to the second part of it. For me, I have to visualize the process. I have to visualize myself in there doing it. Um, there's many times I visualize hugging you when you're not looking, but you know. Yeah, well, you know. <laughs> um, Doesn't everyone? <laughs> yes, they do. The <laughs> handsome devil. Um, but I think that's a key for me is, you know, one, I got to understand what the end result is. Two, I have to visualize. But but something even more important, too, is I can't let it become bigger than I am. Mm-hmm. If we go back to the Special Forces factory story, you know, when I'm in something challenging, the more power I give it over me, the less likely I am to succeed mm-hmm. or the more challenging it will be to succeed. So I have to I have to keep that under control. You know, my dad always tells me, he goes, you know, your mind is like a circle of doors and you're in the middle. And if you open the wrong door, then it takes you down someplace you don't want to go. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the important concept of that is if I let something, if I open the door, and then let this problem set become so large, then I'll be overwhelmed and won't want to won't want to actually attempt it. So I think, again, I have to understand the end process, the end game. I got to be able to visualize it, and I got to keep the task at hand manageable and under control in my mind. And I hope everybody will rewind that part of this show and listen to that again because it's extremely valuable advice. Um, <clears throat> How would you define self-confidence? Mm. What does it mean to you? Mm. <laughs> Somebody told me you're either born with it or you have it. No, I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> yeah, but we know that guy was kind of crazy. Yeah. So, <laughs> you know, I think self-confidence is very similar to working out. You know, like you can't have a, a, a strong chest if you don't do the exercises to actually enhance that muscle. And if we look at self-confidence like a muscle... How many people actually work self-confidence out? Mm-hmm. You know, we'll go back to, to your kids going off the edge of that cliff on a rappel. He's working out his self-confidence right there. He's, he's exercising it and he's building it up. And, and I think moments like that is, is where you develop self-confidence and where you start to uh, enhance it and you, you help it to grow and you help it to become more powerful because... 
if you don't if you're not pushing yourself to try new things you're not willing to accept failure as you say you're right mm-hmm. uh, i know i've heard you say many times you know failure is your friend it's not an enemy mm-hmm. and if you're not willing to do that you're never going to exercise self-confidence you're never going to say you know what <laughs> i just did that i just ran a spartan or i just you know a in a training scenario, I just saved that guy's life because he was bleeding out and I knew exactly what to do. All those things are building blocks for self-confidence. All those things are like starting to bench press off at 135 and then going to 155 and 185 and then so on and so on. So I think Mm -hmm. if you look at self-confidence as a workout routine, I think working self-confidence out on a regular basis is what makes it stronger and more powerful. Absolutely, I would agree. So tell us, in kind of concise terms, try and break it down, make it simple. What is a system you'd use to teach people to overcome fear and conquer an obstacle? Uh, you know, what are the steps? Sure. Well, first you got to have a goal, right? So you got to figure out what it is that you want to do. Um, chances are it's achievable. It's always achievable. I think secondly, you have to outline kind of what you're looking to do. Um, for me, I have to find the end result. Um, I have to understand the end result. Um, I have to visualize myself doing it. And finally, I have to not let it get out so out of control that it becomes bigger than I am um, and it becomes manageable. Um, and I think you just continue to work at it. Now, are you going to have some failures in there? Sure, but you just continue to work at it. Um, and the biggest thing, too, that you got to remember is positive self-talk. Without that, um, it's really hard to, to keep going forward. Um, so one of the examples or example I can give you is is myself, um, you know, and early on in high school, I think I graduated with a 1.9 GPA. I graduated from University of Maryland with a 2.3 in economics. Um, not the brightest or not the best GPA out there, right? <laughs> um, but I had a lot of self-doubt and a lot of, again, scars from what people thought of me and what I let them get in, you know, what I started to believe. But, you know, a funny thing happened is, you know, the percentage of people that make it through the Special Forces Medical course is probably less than 0.005%. And, you know, 1.9 GPA and a 2.3, it's like people would laugh at me when they saw that. You know, now, currently, um, I made it into the, you know, University of Utah PA school. Um, And that, again, they have quite a bit of applicants, but they take like 3%. Had I let my GPA and things before rule the way I thought and the positive self-thought that I had, I would have never accomplished these things. I would have given up before I even started. Mm-hmm. So I think positive self-talk is is got to be a continuous flow through all the steps. Absolutely. And I think that's great advice. Um, what would be a message you would give to someone who needs a boost of self-confidence, inspiration, motivation? I would say put one foot out and just start doing it. I think the longer we analyze something, the more paralyzed we become. Uh, I used to say back in the day, overanalyzation causes paral- you know, paralyzation. I don't know if that's even a word, but I made it up because it rhymes. <laughs> it sounds good to, you, to me here. So. Yeah, so I think, you know what, you just got to take that first step. You got you to gotta get out. You got to make that first move, either physically or mentally or emotionally. Awesome. What's your favorite motivational quote? Do you have one? Mm, Yeah, my dad. My dad's full of them. So this one I think actually came from my grandpa. But he says, if you kick every stone in the road, you'll never get to where you're going. No, I like it. Yeah, and I think if you you apply that to life, it could be so many things. I mean, there's stones of insecurity, stones of failure, stones of... Uh, you know, financial stress, whatever you want to make. I mean, if you kick every one of them, you're never going to get where you're going if you have to deal with every one of them. Absolutely. I love it. Um, so tell us what you've got coming up in the future uh, about your book. And then tell us again how people can reach out to you and find you. Yeah, perfectly. Um, email is always the best. Uh, Sal Rosano, oh, I'm sorry, S Rosano. That's R-O-S-S-A-N-O at 31 at gmail.com. That's the best way to get a hold of me. Um, right now, I have a book out there, and it's called "Is It Clear for Medical?" Um, and then one of the things that kind of motivated me to do that was when I was working as a police officer. Uh, 
anytime we would call for fire, fire would always, or the dispatch would always say, is it clear for medical, meaning is the scene safe? Now, this is nothing on fire department or the paramedics, but this is on the ability of a police officer to save his own skin and be able to take the, take the, uh, the situation at hand and make sure that he walks away, a family member walks away, or a partner walks away. Um, typically, in any kind of traumatic event, when somebody is having any kind of blood loss, uh, you're usually done in three minutes. Mm-hmm. And firefighters, forgive me for this, but it takes firefighters three minutes to get off the recliner. <laughs> okay, so. Sal said that, not <laughs> Brett. <laughs> no, those guys are great, but you know what? Laws of physics, you just can't cheat time, and, and I think you got to be ready to save yourself. So the book hopefully will empower police officers around the country to give them the, maybe give them tools that, you know, again, they may only need to know one time. But they need, they'll probably need to know it. Awesome. Well, thank you. Well, Sal, it has been an honor to have you on Operation Limitless today. It's been an honor to be your friend for all these years and, and uh, to teach with you as many different courses as we taught together. And I hope you'll come back and see us again soon and share some wisdom, wisdom with us and maybe co-host or yeah, do the show with me. I think oh, that would be an it. honor. That would be awesome. And that's it for today. Uh, We've got some great shows coming up. Look for some great guests, uh, Olympians, survival experts. Um, We've even got one gentleman who's one of only 12 people in history that squatted over 1,200 pounds. That's pretty amazing. Wow. So we've got some cool stuff coming up. So if you have any questions for me, please feel free to email me at brett at brettlechtenberg.com. That's B-R-E-T-T at B-R-E-T-T-L-E-C-H. T-N-B-E-R-G.com. And until next time for the Kings Radio Network, I'm Brett Lechtenberg, and as always, live a limitless life. <laughs>